Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic's review of the 2005 HBO original series, Rome. Welcome, ladies and gents, to... How do we even start this? Um, uh, the Queen is dead, long live the king. HBO's Rome, season one, episode... Um, oh, whole season review. Sorry, I'm, so, I'm in the use of saying that. Yes, we are going to review the whole season of HBO's Rome in this episode, and we're just going to share some general thoughts about the season, some various best ofs in our opinions, and some other assorted things here. My illustrious panel of hosts are, as always, Cole... BP and self-styling sudden monarchist Jacob, but we're coming for that throne, baby. If it is not abundantly clear, um, several weeks from now listening to this, this is certainly old news. But <laughs> <laughs> um, King Jacob will have been crowned. Jacob the no, first, I imagine. Queen Jacob the first. Oh, Queen Jacob the first. Because okay. kings are tyrannical and looked down upon in history, and okay. queens are self-empowered and good to their people. Okay, okay. All right. Unless, well, <laughs> unless you're uh, Cersei Lannister, Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you just walked into that rake and it slammed up in your nose. <laughs> All right, so getting started here, gents. Just uh, thoughts on season one here as a whole. I, you know, we've been doing vibe checks most episodes here. I got a feeling that it's going to be pretty positive, even from me even from all of us who at various points have gone on various rants but my thoughts on season one as a whole it was really great from a storytelling and screenwriting perspective from my opinion not that i'm an accomplished screenwriter myself but it uh hbo's realm understands it's not an action show but a show about characters living through the decline of a quasi-democratic system and as my previous hosts have stated the death of the roman republic and its political game of power poisons the relationships of individual characters in the show in their pursuit of power. For example, Servilia and Caesar's relationship crumbles for Caesar's political gain, and Servilia corrupts Octavia for her own political gain. And inversely, the personal lives of these Roman citizens influence the death of the Roman Republic. Titus Polo's drunken brawl starts a bloodbath in the Forum. It leads to Antony running from the city and sets Caesar on a warpath against Pompey. Niobe's affair finally comes to light and allows the assassination of Caesar to occur. So it is mostly tight from a storytelling perspective and working with what they have and i find that most of the historical inaccuracies mostly excusable so overall i enjoyed this season how about you guys though i really overall thought the season was pretty great i think this is one of those shows where it has the instances where it has starts out great dips not to like bad quality but dips from great to good like all the episodes are good at least so that's at least I guess that's the worst thing about the show is that the worst episode could be still good or enjoyable, but then it gradually gets better at it kind of, it's like, see episodes like four, five, and six, I would classify as the good episodes. And then it just builds back up to better each time, but that's just my opinion. I know Jacob disagrees with me. I think it started out great. Dipped to good for a little bit. I would still recommend those episodes. They're not bad. They're just good. And then back to great again. It just, uh, yeah. Rebuttal. Five, six, seven, eight are the best episodes in the season. I didn't say uh, five. I said seven. You said eight. five and six. You said five and six were good, but not yeah. great. 
and I say five, six, seven, eight are the the that run of four episodes are the highlight of the entire show. Anyways, hello. Um, my thoughts on season one of HBO's Rome. And I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic here, right? You might just say I'm saying this because it's uh, one of two TV shows I've watched. Remember, I've added Gilmore Girls to the list since we've started this podcast. But HBO's Rome is the best television show I've ever seen. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Between uh, the two shows. Well, to be fair, I haven't finished season one of Gilmore Girls yet. It's riding pretty high. <laughs> Dean just broke up with Rory. I'm deeply depressed about it. But uh, <laughs> uh, but no, it's really good. Um, it knows what it is, and it's a very smart show, and it like doesn't set out to be this action-packed tale of war, it's a, a, which we, you know, we've kind of talked about this in, in bits and pieces. It's a political game. It's a political show. And uh, we're looking at inner workings and, uh, as Kay pointed out, you know, little personal movements and how that affects the grand scheme of this idea of the Republic. And I think it's it executes really well in the way it blends, yeah, individuals and their importance in that overarching um, grand scheme uh, is pretty good. The show sucks. <laughs> Professional hater. He's got me the contrarian. But I thought the show was really good it had a lot of uh, a lot of strong characters like you would think that a lot of them would be kind of left to out to dry and there were a couple that i think more could have been done with but overall i think uh, most of them were fleshed out pretty well they all had a lot of good strong character moments which is what i'm all about in shows so yeah i'm all in i love it all right, all right. Glad to hear the positivity, guys. Uh, maybe production note here. If I had more time to think of this, Jacob, um, it would have been really funny if all your responses could be tailored to talk about Gilmore Girls or <laughs> or HBO's Rope. We can't tell which one you're actually talking about. Um, or or to add to the canon here, maybe next season you can't remember what's the difference between Gilmore Girls and HBO's Rome, so constantly get confused about what's what. Anyways, anyways, I don't know. That's ways out. Yeah, anyways. When Rory went off to war, I mean, uh, Octavian, I mean, Emily Gilmore, I mean, Jess, I mean, Luke, I mean. Yeah, I was so sad when Lorelai got assassinated by like eight people. (laughs) The next thing that we are going to share here is the biggest surprise that we encountered during season one of HBO's Rome. Biggest surprise that it hit me was that they had changed the date of the Ides of March associated with the assassination of Caesar to around the Calends of February. So much show, so they uh, they changed the name of the season finale to Calends of February. So the first time I watched this show, I did not expect Caesar to get killed based on the episode title, even in the final minutes. Even even though obviously it is telegraphed in that episode, he's going to die by the end. Um, he is uh, uh, the the date change through me, but that's my thoughts there. How about you, BP? I had a question for you, actually, since the time has passed now where we're, we're call like what percentage of the show is historically accurate and what percentage of the show had taken artistic liberties? Yeah, Jake, but you and I had that running calculation in our breakout <laughs> room. What, what number did we assign? Oh, yes. I think uh, the meticulous formula and arithmetic that we assigned to it uh, spurned out, spurned, spit out the number. Um, 300% accurate? 300%. Oh, man. Did our equation work? Um, my, my real answer, BP, is that 
every episode there's there's like x number of historical inaccuracies probably the biggest inaccuracy is just how quickly things happen and other important things do not get covered i guess um but for the most part it's fairly accurate all the major beats get hit and nothing has changed probably the biggest single change is the date of caesar's assassination that i can think of and maybe it shrunk down I don't even know what year HBO's Rome is taking place in at this point, but yeah. Uh, fair question, BP. BP, what was your biggest surprise, by the way? My biggest surprise was everything involving Polo and Cleopatra. I know Cole also has that as a surprising moment for him. So I will let him take lead on this because he actually sent that as his biggest surprise before I did. But from my two cents on it, uh, I w- was pretty surprised that Polo being... Uh, the crass man that he is, uh, the whole season, I never would have thought, oh yeah, that man's gonna eventually sleep with Cleopatra and father, potentially father her child. Uh, so yeah, that was the biggest surprise. Never once I ever think, yeah, that man and Cleopatra, they're gonna, they're gonna get hot and heavy as it were. Well, uh, BP did steal my thunder a little bit, but he left me something. So uh, yeah, my biggest surprise of the season was Polo being the father of Caesarian because like that's like known as like the I believe the only like biological child that Caesar had in his life so to just like twist that on its head was really surprising to me and I I don't know whether it was a good or bad surprise yet I'll have to see uh, if season two does anything with that does does Caesar have a daughter Yes, in the very first oh, episode. Yeah, I forgot about that so yes. long ago. I mean, you're you're right. It's like I think it, that's like the opening minutes of the show, basically. Oh, it, it yeah. We hear about that before we meet Pompey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like literally one of the very first things. I mean, so much happens after that first episode. It's understandable why Cole forgot that Caesar had a biological daughter because I mean, like. I still to this day forget that Pompey was assassinated at the end of episode seven. Never forget. God. And Jacob, how about you? Biggest uh, surprise? There's a lot of surprises in this show. It was really hard to choose. I went over my notes and pretty much any time I was writing in all caps was a surprise. <laughs> but I think I had to actually choose the moment where we learn of uh, baby Lucius's true um, maternity uh or yeah that makes sense and or, paternity uh, well and oh, paternity. I guess, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um lineage because like i mean it was such a surprise to me i didn't know until we came to the podcast yeah yeah i watched the whole episode i was like huh yeah that means nothing and then like <laughs> came in as like oh my gosh this changes everything and i i you know i got up and i i was uh, and the very last thing is like Niobe breastfeeding the baby. Um, I just want to check in. We all pick up on the implication, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I made some oh. notes prior in the scene, to, prior in the episode. Because <laughs> you had said, <laughs> I don't think Jacob got it. Yeah, he didn't. I, okay, I have to say, okay, this changes a lot for me. This is my least favorite scene of the episode. I was going to put on my bad because I was like, this just feels uncomfortable. It's such a close up personal moment. Um, but. Wow, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, I guess she, she might be able to nurse the baby. Yeah, she yeah. could be looking after it. Yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, but now I'm seeing what you guys are implying, and I'm like, oh, man, this 
changes a lot of what I think about Niobe. Not really, but she thought Brainus was dead. This I have to process this. <laughs> uh, earlier when you said, yeah, she she stayed faithful and is taking care of the grandson, I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no. <laughs> I I'm sure I was yelling at the world. No, probably not, no. But uh yeah, it was is just a big reveal at the end of the episode, and I guess um in the grand scheme of things. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it impacted a lot, but it didn't impact a lot for a long time. And like kind of with the power of hindsight, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But um, I don't know. I was just so keen on believing Niobe. And then what do you know? Right there. Evidence to the contrary. And it uh, it just caught me off guard. Indeed. So you're saying your opinion of her kind of like uh, jumped off a jumped off a high place. I don't know if it affected my opinion of her, God. but uh, if I if it were to, yeah, maybe it would have uh, fallen backwards off a high place. Best episode of season one, folks. Let's let's rattle them off here. I'll go ahead and start here. Uh, episode eight, Caesarian, was my favorite. It was really fun to watch, and I listened to all of these three times before they go out. It was maybe the most fun to listen to and edit to that I've done thus far. The sexual escapades obviously were really funny, but Caesar, like as a character, was also very standout in this episode. He had a lot of ego, as we were called, dictating what Egypt would do. He showed some big emotional ups and downs from the Pompey revelation at the beginning to holding little baby Caesarian at the end. So overall, fun episode to watch fun one to talk about most fun in my opinion so far how about you guys though i will go ahead and go my personal favorite was episode 11 the spoils the penultimate episode i really liked polo's character arc throughout the episode and just like the the disparity with like him like praying in the in the dungeons and like sacrificing the beetle because that's all he had on hand like when you go back to the first episode when he was like making all these promises to the gods that he didn't have the ability to keep immediately just like him like trying to like pray for Irene and Varenus's to like have happy lives and like the reaffirmation of Varenus and Polo's brotherhood just thought it was great all around my favorite episode is episode 10 triumph my that is my favorite episode because it is kind of showcasing the beginning of the end for Caesar, even though they don't explicitly show everything, we get the seeds planted. Like we get it, we meet Cassius for the first time, and he's one of the ones that helps persuade Brutus to lead the attack on the Ides of March. We also that moment where we see uh, Caesar walk around in Rome with the uh, blood of the animal that we don't one hundred percent know exactly what it is. I think it was a a a bull of some kind, but just that scene with him and Octavian where he where Octavian walks in and starts putting the blood on his face. That was a pretty cool sequence. I know it was a little weird for some people, but I enjoyed it. I just really like everything about this episode. It was just so entertaining from beginning to end. And yeah. PP, hold on. The the blood, it weirded some people out. Dude, we were all cheering. We love that scene. Like didn't all yeah, we were all bad. Yeah, yeah. Y'all didn't read some of the comments on the internet like I did. <laughs> Oh, are you reading internet comments of a show that came out in 2005? I just want to know what people's reactions were. All right. Okay. But that Triumph is my favorite episode. I also like that there's some callbacks, kind of like how Polo is being called citizen, and that's kind of been treated as a dirty word to ex-soldiers. And other things like that in that episode are really 
good. Jacob? I may have an unpopular opinion because my favorite oh, no. episode is Utica, which I believe is mm. episode uh, eight. Nine. Nine. It's episode nine. And I, I think it's really good. Like, it's got some moments that some of us do not like, and I understand why we don't like them. But I think it starts on this really powerful note with uh, Kato the Younger and Scipio's suicides that it's really impactful and, like, you know, is kind of like the nail in the coffin to this big war that has occurred. And um, it's just there's there's a lot of stuff that's just happening throughout it. Um, this is, of course, the episode where um, Octavian sleeps with uh, Octavia. But I don't mind that as a scene um i think it uh is very impactful and like it does definitely elicit a feeling of disgust uh but i think it is an effectual story moment and it uh it starts to introduce us to this uh kind of evil side of uh, servilia or vengeful side of servilia by any means necessary to quote malcolm x um <laughs> yeah you didn't know you didn't know servilia was of the malcolm x train of thought did you um gosh going off the rails here i'm in the wrong notes but it also it also look <laughs> get to my ending point uh it ends on this really powerful moment where servilia is like attacked and stripped naked in and that scene is very brutal and very powerful and i just think there's a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of drama in this episode and a lot of like just where you're like i can't believe this is happening and i was just kind of in a constant state of surprise uh, along with like you know the the feeling that all of this is super super in fact impactful and important and in the grand scheme of how it will affect the republic so utica it's also the one time I think we were all kind of like, yeah, we hate Adia, but you know what? She was kind of in the right when she attacks Octavian and Octavia for what they did. I don't think she was in the right for attacking them. Don't put words in my mouth. I, I like the Octavian slap, um, but, but, all right. Um, best relationship, folks, whether you took that as friendship or romantic or otherwise, we were going to share our thoughts there. I'll go ahead and start here. My favorite relationship was Varinus and Caesar, because while Caesar is mostly respectful, he sometimes shows disdain towards Varinus, and I, I find that interesting. Varinus, he always acts very upstanding in response to Caesar, no matter what. He's probably the least casual person in Caesar's life. He acts far less familiar than Antony and Pasca due to their superior Caesar, and that is despite the fact that Varinus despises Caesar's politics and wishes himself not loyal to Caesar, but nonetheless, Caesar continues to see gain for himself in promoting Varinus to magistrates and then to the Senate, and Varinus continues to accept. And others go on to eventually question Varinus on why he's so committed to Caesar, but Varinus eventually kind of stops asking himself if he believes Caesar is a tyrant and a dictator, 
and he goes along for the ride. Their relationship is the basis of one of the most interesting points of the show because Varinus and his morality is constantly tested and put in situations that he personally morally disagrees with, but he follows through out of loyalty and he still tries to maintain a sense that he is a moral person. Because despite how morally gray we might call Varinus, he likes to think of himself as a good person at the end of the day, yet nonetheless does this dirty work. So that basis comes from his relationship with Caesar. I find it very uh, interesting. It was my best down here. Uh, how about you guys, though? My best was Varinus and Polo. I feel like that has been like the relationship throughout the entire show we've seen them go from like a, not enemies but like a, they disliked each other certainly to like a a buddy cop dynamic to like this like this brotherly dynamic like we just like see see the rise and fall and then rise again of this relationship it is just a it is a sight to see i borderline felt like a, varinus felt more for polo than he did for niobe at points <laughs> i oh at points i would certainly agree uh yeah yeah I'd, I'd be down with that. Yeah, I don't think uh, Varinus would have had would have been on top of Polo, like, blessing the Earth and his farmland. <laughs> they spent years together off screen. Years. Um, let's see. My favorite, or my, I think the best relationship, I would probably agree that it is Polo and Varinus, but I love the dynamic between Caesar and his right-hand man, Arf Arf, it's Big Pasca pasca his servant um i their like banter is like elite and they're just like you know they get the point across and they're very effectual in how they communicate like it's you know it serves a purpose it's like pasca go do this or pasca's like oh this is the information that we have at hand and this is what you should do it's always kind of done with like these funny quips and they they just know each other well and the chemistry rules and i was sad to see pasca also get attacked in the Kalens of February, I hope Feb was it February? Yep. <laughs> okay, the Kalens of February, uh, and I hope poor little Pasca is okay. Jacob, you said the word banter when you had the opportunity to say bants. Um, I think that really puts your claim on the English throne in jeopardy. Oh, you're right. You are right, Jacob, He's the pretender. Got the fancy guys. <laughs> My best relationship is one that we don't that we've touched on but not necessarily talked about, and that is the relationship between Octavian and Caesar. Because while they do not share a whole lot of screen time together, Caesar was essentially a mentor for him, even though they never explicitly said it. And I say that because him and Octavian are kind of on the same intelligence level with politics they are on the same page octavian knows what caesar has planned and i know that it helps that caesar's his uncle and things like that but i think that it is just so interesting to see how much octavian has picked up from caesar and how much caesar has actually been a mentor to him whether he caesar realizes it or not and i think to an extent caesar with caesar's type of arrogance he would be kind of aware that, yeah, I know that Octavian has picked up a lot of my knowledge. I mean, Octavian is also one of the only ones that knows about, on the show at least, about seizures, uh, seizures, seizures. Uh, and he's one of the only ones that actually knows about it. Uh, while it is not fully addressed again, that kind of just shows how strong their relationship is as characters. And once again, we may not see them a, a whole lot on screen, 
but man, every time we do, we just, we sense it. We know it's there. We know what's all there by just a few moments of dialogue and facial expressions. Maybe we'll get to see more of their relationship in season two. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Uh, flashbacks, flashbacks. Yeah. Hey, and we should not forget about their relationship. Octavian obviously wooed him. Yes. You're correct. You sly sly little fox. Great quote by Fanatia. Great mom. And, um, all right, uh, folks, we're going to move away from best of, favorites, happy-go-lucky stuff. New question. Who, besides Brutus, is most responsible for the Ides of March, or rather Calends of February, occurring? My answer to this was that Caesar himself brought this upon him. Caesar initially scorned Servilia, not a, you know, not an evil person in and of itself. Then he beat her, so not great he turned uh what could have been a passive enemy uh, a heartbroken ex-lover to a very active person with a very justifiable vendetta additionally the straw that broke the camel's back that turned brutus against him was caesar trying to send him to govern macedonia brutus was denying everyone who wanted caesar dead uh his mother quintus cassius and not that caesar had realized that at the time but But when Caesar himself showed that he mistrusted Brutus, despite all the things Brutus was quietly doing to help Caesar, when he uh, when Caesar had no reason to expel him other than fearing the propaganda, that is when Brutus snapped. Caesar brought this on himself. I will add a little bit to that, that Servilia was a big factor into Caesar's demise or a.k.a. the Ides of March because Without Servilia there, we would not have had the arrangement for Brutus and Cassius to meet up and discuss uh, what needs to happen with Caesar. We wouldn't have Servilia trying to persuade Brutus in order to turn on Caesar. And while a lot of that is coming from what Kay brought up on Caesar's actions as to why Servilia is the way she is handling the plotting of the assassination of Caesar without her, we wouldn't have had Varinus uh, learning about the infidelity of Niobe. We wouldn't have had all the scheming and things like that behind the scenes without her assistance. And I think that Servilia played just as big of a part, even if she is not physically in the Senate chambers during that moment, she plays just as big of a part in the demise of Caesar than we give her credit for. This is just like an onion. It's got layers. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> Brutus might be at the top. We peel it back. Who do we see? Caesar. We peel it back. Who do we see? Servilia. And Cole, we peel it back. Until it all comes back there. to Adia, doesn't it? It sure does. Because she was the one that was mad about Caesar and Servilia being involved so she had her her gang put all the that graffiti up of them, and uh, they said, "Hey, that's not great." So Caesar had to go and break off the relationship, and him doing that is what led to all of this. So it all comes back to Adia. She's everything wrong with the show. Snaps, and she's responsible for her own demise. Kind of poetic, beautiful, c'est la vie. Do you, now you're doing a French accent. What are you going for, my guy? <laughs> so he just wants to unite all of Europe. 
<laughs> yeah, clearly. So the so the layer is Atia, then Servilia, then Caesar, then Brutus. So that's the layer of it all. Mm-hmm. Jacob, did you have anything to add on to that? Um, to to Cole's point. Oh this point? gosh. Uh, that was pretty much perfect. Um, and, you know, if we were to get to the very heart of the onion, I'm sure we could say, I don't know, the, the Grokai brothers, but we don't need to go down there. It was. <laughs> no, it was Timon with the horse yeah. in the very first episode. Mm-hmm. And then that horse was secretly a red balloon. And <laughs> and Timon is Pennywise. I love that we keep using this inside <laughs> joke that no one understands. Is it worth like explaining? Because like I don't know. Will it? Uh, I don't think it's funny. That's that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I think it, we only think it's funny because it happened when we were there. Yeah. But but to I so I love inside I, jokes. I hope to be a part of one someday. I okay. <laughs> I frankly was not there for the story, as I understand it. You guys had a waiter at Applebee's that came up, and BP said. What if the waiter is the red balloon is Pennywise? Uh, what what's the real story there? We were playing something... Smash. We were playing Smash Bros. We were on one of these. It wasn't a level. It was like one of the locations, and in the background kept floating red balloons. And I said, mm-hmm. "What if this is the world of it?" And you all want. I don't remember exactly who I was referring to, but these are the red balloons, and somebody is Pennywise in this game. That is also incorrect That's because I, I thought. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Jackbox related. It is from Jackbox. Yeah. I don't. The prompt was I forget what the prompt was. The answer, which BP was not even involved in this like <laughs> like bit. Uh, someone's answer was about like a a waiter and like a spoon, and BP just pipes up out of nowhere and says. What if the waiter was Pennywise and the spoon was the red balloon? <laughs> what in the world? Okay. And, and see how it isn't funny at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is a good exercise in, again, the onion theory. You just got to peel it back. Find <laughs> 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 the truth. And which one of us is actually right? I'm almost um, positive. I know well. one of those, like, ru- it became more of a running joke after the Smash Bros. one. This is more this so. is like uh, what the next Knives Out movie is gonna be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, that did become more funny because we were playing Jackbox and someone like used it again in the next round to like you know kind of <laughs> making fun of the statement and that that killed it was and that cemented it in legacy. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And so it, it I... just it just created a joke format for the end of time for us to use. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Okay. Yeah. Now I know. So yeah, I would cut it out since we are not a hundred percent certain what the official official mm-hmm. origin story mm-hmm. is. No, yeah. I, I mean, think a good uh, majority is certain of the cast. Down to a final few questions here. If you could, what would you change about season one? You know, I've been leading these uh, first couple here. I-, I like to go last this time. Who would like to take the lead here on something they would change? I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Um, something I would like to change about season one of HBO's Rome. And this is something that might change in season two of HBO's Rome. But that is Octavia's agency as a character. Um, she is, for the most part... She's not afforded room to be her own person, I would say. Um, She is simply a tool, a pawn for other people. 
And um, as we go through the story, you you very much hope and you're wishing for this character to wisen up to the tricks that are being played upon her and uh, uh, or rebel or fight back in some way, uh, which she does kind of, I guess, like she runs away like after an episode ends and like we meet her like in a faraway town and she's immediately brought back to Rome. And so I don't, I don't know, kind of a weak moment of agency see if you ask me and uh but it never comes it never comes to fruition we just continuously see octavia being bullied and pushed around and and just used for whatever um purposes uh i mean namely atia or servilia intend to use her for and uh i just uh just wish that she would fight back like because she certainly talks back to atia but she never does anything about it you know, so just wish that character would be your own, man. Do your own thing, Octavia. Jacob, I, I agree with you, definitely. Do, would you classify Octavia as a poorly written character, in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah? All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll continue with the uh, trend here, and that is the relationship between Octavian and Octavia were to change anything about season one, I would have just cut everything about the incestuous relationship that existed for five or so minutes in an episode. Because like Kate mentioned at least two other times on an episode was that it's never brought up again, except at the very beginning of Triumph, because they are trying to bring Octavia home. But other than that, it's never really mentioned again. And I think that there are other ways that Octavian could have manipulated Octavia and, or Octavia, sorry, could have manipulated Octavian to telling a secret about Caesar or any other secret that she would need to know to bring on to Servilia. I don't think that seduction was the way to do it. And especially since it is not doing anything in the grand scheme of things. And it really tanks the relationship that I felt that Octavian Octavian had when it came to their brother sister dynamic, because I thought they had a really good brother sister dynamic. It actually kind of seemed like Octavian actually understood why Octavia was as hurt as she consistently was by Atia and was more empathetic towards her. And I think that it wasn't necessarily ruined because in the end, you still have a good set of sibling banters between them in later episodes as limited as they are. But I would 100% change how Octavia manipulates Octavian rather than seduction. Have it be something else. I, I had a quick thought here. And Jacob, I thought about spilling this earlier when you had um, mentioned this uh, a little bit in Egeria. But I, I feel like I have... It's still, I think it's a stupid decision that they slept with each other, but I feel like with some reflection, I am less upset about it now. And I'm thinking back to when I first watched the show in 2017, I, I probably binged these 22 episodes in probably um, a week. And so watching that insane thing occur 
and then just keep plowing through hate watching it i do wonder well i do think now that that probably extra negatively affected my perception because i i don't know if you guys uh recall but our first episode we actually recorded for this show uh we started this on july 11th it is currently uh september 8th and so as we've kind of moved to a more watch week by week basis less fast and furious and uh space has been distanced out between the episodes i feel myself less innately angry um at that scene occurring not that i agree that it was a good decision still but uh just some reflections i'd had and to show the passage of time like guys it doesn't feel like we started this on july 11th at all but here we are yeah i wouldn't even i'm not even angry about the decision i just wish that it just went about a different way since we understood what Servilia was wanting Octavia to do was to get information about Caesar from Octavian. I just wish that it was just written in a different way because as far as I know by history, just kind of through here of things, they don't ever actually have an incestuous relationship in real life as well. Well, it sounds like you should be reading more forums. Um, Cole, how can about you? actually? Sorry, oh. sorry, sorry. Um, I, could I possibly, in this moment, speak to as why I don't actually mind this scene? Um, and that is because, but I feel like Octavian knows the entire time. I don't feel like Octavian is being manipulated, and I don't feel like he is being manipulative either by like going through with this and i i know okay you don't just you don't agree but he uh during scene, he visibly is not enjoying himself right he's staring up at the ceiling there is no expression on his face i think he is just following through with this because it, this is gonna sound really weird but because he is a good sibling and he loves his sister and like he wants to be there for her. And if like, this is what she wants to do, he'll do it. But um, <laughs> I high key feel like Octavian just does not like sex in general, just because of that. I don't think it was the previous episode, but like two episodes prior where he sent to the brothel yeah. to showcase his manhood. He doesn't really seem what well, he seems so indifferent by when he's buckling back his clothes back up after it's all over with. Jacob, did you have any wrapping thoughts there? I don't know. I didn't feel like either parties got any joy out of it. And so um, it I, I didn't I didn't think it was that terrible. Like, okay. Yeah. All right. And Cole, uh, something you would change about season one. Glad to see we've stayed consistent and that we cannot bring that scene up and not talk about it for 10 minutes. <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> to uh, continue the 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 theme of uh octavia and the people she has had sex with i would oh make a change God. pompey oh no i can't <laughs> believe you've done this it's the worst yeah that's something ever. oh my gosh uh, worst is a word for it now i wish they had made pompey cooler now i understand that like to a decent degree, the show is accurate to kind of how things played out for him and who and what he was in this time. But that that was not the question that was posed. The question was, what would I change? I think Pompey should have maybe uh, won a battle or two against Caesar, or at the very least, we should have seen him doing something cool, like, and maybe had a 
maybe a more noble uh, end to his life than what we got. Again, uh, as a historically accurate as it was, that doesn't mean I, I didn't want something better for him. That's Caesar, Caesar also wanted something better for him because he scolds them at the very beginning of the next episode saying, uh, y'all, this was not the way to do it. So I don't think scolds is the right word, but yes. Cole, in terms of like how, what what's your optimal way Pompey dies in this show? I think uh, he and Caesar have like a, a sit down, like Pompey's taken prisoner after like he's defeated. He and Caesar have like a, a sit down, like a real conversation. And then Caesar like, uh, like stabs him in the, like the heart or something, like gives him like something like quick and like not just his head getting cut off brutally, like on a beach. Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting because uh, Caesar and Pompey never actually appear on screen at the same time, and they're like nope. their enemies for over half of the season, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and one thing that I would change about season one, as I said in episode seven, I did not like the presentation of the Battle of Pharsalus. It It is Caesar lying down, is told Pompey is going to attack, and Caesar wings it. Despite being outnumbered, he believes he can win because his forces have something they're actually fighting for. But it's never shown plan anything or planning anything. And after a short History Channel-esque battle sequence, we see him victorious. Pompey later explains how Caesar won, and he secretly hid a legion that routed Pompey's cavalry. Caesar, as presented, did not earn this victory at all. We could have seen him earn it by leading his troops in a vicious battle, a la Battle of Helm's Deep. That's expensive. So what would better fit the vibe of this show would have been for people to talk about how they would win. So here's how I would have actually changed this. Antony and Pasca could inquire to Caesar, we are desperately outnumbered. How are we going to beat Pompey? They are fearful for their lives. And Caesar, with supreme confidence, says, have you so little faith? Cut to victorious battle, Caesar coming in, triumphant. That's all right. I have a better one, though. This is my preferred headcanon. When making battle plans and they are actually planning stuff out, Caesar tells Antony, Antony, I need you hidden behind my flank. And Antony complains that he is not on the front line. But Caesar says, Antony, I trust no one else but you to hold the line. And Antony realizes the weight of the responsibility. It's all on him to pull off the surprise when Pompey's cavalry charges. And that is historically inaccurate, but I think it would work for the character because it would be an utter recommitment to Caesar. Because just that previous episode, Antony did not immediately go help out Caesar like requested. Adia was trying to convince him to turn on Caesar, but for Caesar to welcome him back with open arms in a place of utter trust would have been a cool moment between them that maybe only Antony understood the gravity of and lived up to. So that is how I would improve season one, in my opinion. I'm going to remember it that way now. <laughs> Two headcanons now. That was good. <laughs> So we've got two more questions left, guys. What, uh, or sorry, who is the most entertaining character from season one? I'm volunteering BP to go first. <laughs> BP is going to go after me, so he actually has to go last. I'm volunteering cold to go first. Well, uh, I guess I'll go first considering uh, no one else seems to want to anymore. But uh, my most entertaining character was a... Uh, was uh, our favorite himbo, Titus Polo. The man is a treat. He is funny. He's crass. He's uh, he's having sex. He's killing people. I'm kind of surprised he wasn't doing both of those things at the same time at any point. <laughs> but uh, 
he's just he's great he's so funny like it, everything he does like whether intentional or not just comes off as like so goofy just like when he's like ready to back up Varinus when uh the the goon show up and but he's like naked so he's just like got a towel wrapped around him ready to just like stab Arastes Fullman in the neck like he's he's just so good all right all right all right uh I you, would like to say I think that Atia is the most entertaining character entertaining to a T for the moment we are used to Atia ooh entertaining uh <laughs> <laughs> to everything she does like she is essentially like you know in fifth grade you're taught plot mountains right there's the exposition there's the conflict uh, there's the rising action the climax etc etc atia often is the source of conflict and like all rising action between a bunch of people and so she's constantly supplying like the reasons why we're talking about things because she's just doing things and they might be things that piss us off and things that stink and things that are manipulative and abusive and um the list goes on but it's uh it makes for a great watch and it, she's fun to root against and so uh therefore i think she is the most entertaining character all right, thank you for sharing, Jacob and Cole. Uh, BP and I had the same most entertaining character, so I was going to share first, and BP was going to add on to anything that he thinks that I didn't quite get to. But Mark Antony, of course, is the archetypical bad boy of Rome. He is characterized so well in that he is a debaucherous, heavy-handed politician uh, who has little morals other than the pursuit of power for power's sake. He is a man of violence who revels in it. To a certain degree, and especially when he's in the city of Rome, Antony treats life and politics like it's a game to be played and Caesar even scolds Antony before the triumph and tells him explicitly they are not playing a game. But in short, Antony's got that dog in him. BP. Arf, arf. So my most entertaining character is also Mark Antony. And it's just because he is so crude and he kind of comes off like super uh boorish as well but at the same time he's pretty charming in the way he presents himself mm. he is such an interesting way that he has developed that he has all this quick wit he is able to have a quip on him ready to go an example on him this is when uh Varinus goes to see caesar after rescuing polo from the fighting pits or the gladiator or whatever they're called arena arena and Mark Andy just like, oh, look who it is, the hero of the the hero of the hour, or something like that. Uh, I also just love in the final episode when Servilia invites Atia over. Uh Atia asks, Why would she want to save me? She see me, she hates me. And Mark Antony just replies, So do I, but that's no bar to our to friendship. I just love that a lot of his quips too are just so honest, but because he comes off so charming that it doesn't. Even if he is being a jerk, it it comes off so endearing in a weird kind of twisted way that it just makes him so interesting and so entertaining to watch whenever he's on screen. Well, I think all of us, a, a major highlight of literally the second episode of the show was um, when Caesar, sorry, when Antony is negotiating for Caesar with Pompey's crew, um, one of them is like, that's a threat. You're threatening us. And he's like, I assure you, it's not a threat. Snow always melts. Uh, oh, man. Good one. So good. One. good. All right. Uh, and finally, guys, the illustrious prize, 
best character of season one. Now, Jacob and I had synced up our answers on this, so Jacob will go first and I'll go last, I suppose. So, Cole BP, you, why don't you take the lead here? I'll go first since Cole and Jacob have started it already. My best character is Polo. I think that Polo has had overall the best character arc of all the characters on the show. I think he starts off as this crass dude who uh, only wants to fight and sleep with women. And to an extent, that's kind of how he ends the season. But we get to see more of the human side of him as the show goes on. And that's what makes this character arc so interesting is we do also see subtle changes of him throughout the whole season. And I think him being with Irene, despite how Stockholm syndrome it kind of becomes, and I don't necessarily agree with one scene in particular in the later half of the season uh, with between Polo and Irene when it comes to their sexual chemistry or lack thereof. But so many caveats. Way to way to beat around the bush there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But I just I see Polo progress into somebody that we realize he has a lot of baggage on him. And I think a lot of what he has become, what he had become at the beginning of the show is kind of his coping mechanism with it all. Like how he had this rough childhood. Both of his parents had died when he was very young. And I think a lot of, once again, it was just him coping, but we kind of see him realize that he can be vulnerable around certain people. And I think he is finally willing to express some of that vulnerability out. And I think even when he cracks a crass joke, even when Barinas kind of shakes his head at him, we see a progression of Polo. Cool. All right. My favorite character best was character. one uh, best good and eh, same difference. <laughs> uh, I disagree. Well, uh, in my world, because I'm the one talking right now. You are one the same. <laughs> but uh, my uh, best character, Octavian. I feel like he's had a, an interesting character arc because it's been very subtle, I feel like. Because I feel like in a lot of ways, he's kind of like the same kid he was at the beginning of the show. But like he's like gone through his own stuff and just kind of like become more like mature, like firm in his own thoughts maybe a bit stoic but like a, he's kind of like been slowly it seems like shedding the care he has for like the world around him outside of maybe octavia and polo maybe varinus he doesn't have a lot of like interactions with varinus but uh, he like he goes to bat for polo tries to find a lawyer for him uh, against caesar's advice and that just like is one of the most politically savvy characters in the show. So it's just great to hear him like making his plans and just his whole thing about like him working within the church, but like, like not believing in the gods is super interesting. I hope we get a little bit more of that fleshed out, but uh, it's just, he's been a, a treat to watch. All right. Thanks for sharing there, Cole and Jacob. I think that the best character is uh, Lucius Varinus of the 13th Legion um he i kind of just feel like he is 
the most character out of the bunch. I don't know if that mm. makes any sense, no, totally. but like we're constantly getting these moments of uh, dilemmas that Varinus is faced with. And they're like, you know, uh, personal dilemmas, you know, that he's forced to make a decision to go with his morals or, or go with that, which will make him more fortunate and affluent. Like, on a regular basis and we see him grow closer and with Niobe and we see uh you know the kind of tumult of that all falling apart and how deeply devastated he was not only to find out Lucius was uh, a child born out of infidelity but that Niobe killed herself um you can see the complicated emotions that he experienced just simply gazing at the bastard Lucius and uh, the, the character of Arenas just goes through so much and has so many attacks other characters that we, you know, we've all talked about Polo, Niobe, uh, Caesar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that uh, I just think we see the most just like moments that inform us about who he is, what he is about. And uh Yeah. Jacob, I totally agree with you there. Uh, that'll be the last point I make on why Varinus is my favorite character. But as, as an archetype, Varinus is a good man who must do bad things. And of course, mm -hmm. good is relative because he disrupts the legal execution of Polo. So he's a bad guy for that reason, mm -hmm. among other things like being a slaver. But nonetheless, he is basically presented as the most moral person in the show, quite frankly. Uh, nonetheless, uh, or nonetheless, he's so moral and honorable. He follows uh, those who does not hold his values, particularly Caesar, and Caesar constantly uses him because Varinus constantly succeeds and eventually is rewarded quite handsomely for it, which introduces a new dimension to his character. Will he compromise his morals for personal gain? In most instances, yes, he accepts Caesar's promotions. He only jeopardizes his new position in life by saving Polo, which actually works out well for him in the end. We also see him become a softer, more open man to Niobe, who, if it hadn't been made clear, I also love the progression of their relationship. Um, and also, like, to his children. Verenus is no longer a stranger to his children in the second half of the series, and they welcome him back lovingly with open arms. And throughout the series, we always have this nagging feeling in the back of our head that it's built on a lie, or there's something hiding out there. Niobe and Verenus recommit to each other to start fresh we see them learn to fall in love again we see it at its apex but Varinus never knows the full truth and it quite literally puts him into a crisis he is capable he holds a knife debating killing Niobe himself who herself has stated she fears Varinus would kill her and Lucius if he knew the truth and when Varinus is left cradling her broken body like Polo I think that he immediately regretted his decision and realized had he not held the knife, had he not come at her so angrily, he could have embraced her alive, unlike the way he holds her corpse now. So in short, Varinus is a great example of a character who shows his own character and his own values by being put in increasingly difficult decisions that challenges him, and it changes himself, these decisions that he makes. And all right, guys, we are treading some... 
untread waters there is not going to be an episode in the dotrr feed quite frankly for the rest of 2022 you can expect us to return in 2023 and hopefully summer of 2023 uh schedules uh accommodating the crew can reunite to talk about season two of hbo's rome and finish this bad boy off you can tweet your thoughts about the show or just uh throw a follow learn some stuff to at dotrr pod on twitter and if you want to learn more about the real history behind hbo's rome um, a fair place to start would be chapters 1 through 14 of Death of the Roman Republic. Uh, chapters 15 through 20 are going to spoil some season 2 elements for you, so maybe don't go there if, I don't know, you don't want to spoil the show for you. But please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts if you're able to, and my hosts for the final time here um, for a while. Um, what do you have to promote? Wow, look how far we've come. Um, hello, my name is Jacob. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, um, and I urge you to do so, actually, because uh, I am starting my campaign to become the next Queen of England. Um, I, I mean, I to some extent, I'm joking, but I'm going to try. I'm going to make one of those whitehouse.gov petitions and you can find it on my Twitter and you can sign it and we're going to try and become the queen of England. That Twitter is at soup catfish YOLO. Um, you can also watch um, YouTube at the great wilds. Um, and next you'll hear from me. I'll be uh, in grad school. So if you want to send me money, <laughs> my cash app is money boy, Jacob. So, <laughs> uh, worth it. noting as well there, Jacob, um, this episode should be released, I think literally a month, October 7th. So, I mean, they're going to have to dig through your Twitter for a while to find that petition, but I mean, you're going to retweet it every day, right? Oh, absolutely. It's going to be pinned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Follow me on Letterboxd, BPOSP98. I have not posted on there recently just because teaching has got me busy, but I will uh, be uploading some stuff tonight, actually, on some reviews. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at LilBorty. That's L-I-L underscore B-O-R-T-Y. I also want to get in front of these uh, these crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy theories about the Queen. I want to bring the real truth that I believe has happened. I think BP killed her in order to distract from the poor reviews of Don't Worry Darling to save his wife, Florence Pugh. Oh, God. <laughs> this is going to be like, um, we're going to be subpoenaed by like MI5 or MI6, which one is uh, their CIA, whatever. Um, oh, Interpol. Inter no, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think it's MI6. If they need to talk to me, I'll give them the facts. All right. Well, with all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoy the show. Boop, 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 boop. And we're out. That's a series, a season wrap for K, Jacob, Cole, and BP.